You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. I'll invite you this morning to turn to Psalm 31, our text this morning. It's on page, begins on page 461 of the Pew Bibles. As I continue this exposition of the Psalms, we come to Psalm 31. This entire first book of the Psalter is emphasizing God's kingship. The king reigns, he rules over his people. And this is a good thing for God's people. He's also instituted a human king person of David for Israel, but now Jesus Christ, the God-man who is our king. As we read this passage, it's a little bit lengthy, more lengthy than others in this first book. It's, I think, the second longest. I want you to listen for two things. First is a structure. The first three quarters of this psalm, so verses 1 through 18, listen for the praying and the trusting element of this psalm. Praying and trusting verses 1 through 18. And then the last quarter of this psalm, verses 19 through 24, listen for rejoicing. So we see the praying and the trusting, the first three quarters, and then rejoicing, beginning in verse 19. Then also, as we hear this psalm read, I want you to hear these words as words coming from the lips of Christ. Coming from the lips of Jesus Christ, even as he hung there dying on the cross for us. The Psalms are so powerful when we see them in their complete redemptive context. And here we have Christ who takes upon himself the words of verse five, standing in for, I think, this entire Psalm where Jesus says on the cross with verse five, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so we see in this Psalm Christ's sufferings for us as he took upon himself the iniquities of his people. So listen for these things as we read God's word. So we come to Psalm 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. 
I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful and abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may remember him as Affluenza Boy. In 2013, a 16-year-old was intoxicated while driving in Texas, and he lost control of his speeding car in a residential area, and he slammed it into a group of people working on a disabled car beside the road. Nine people were injured, including one person who was a passenger in the car, being completely paralyzed. And in this tragic event, four people were killed. The driver pled guilty to four counts of intoxication manslaughter. And at sentencing, the driver's attorney made the apparently novel argument that the driver suffered from affluenza, that his wealthy upbringing led him to not understand or appreciate the consequences of his actions or to know right from wrong, because when he's gotten in trouble before, his parents would just bail him out. And so he didn't have the capacity to understand what he was doing was wrong. Well, many commentators believe that this argument was persuasive because the judge, instead of giving a sentence of 20 years in prison, like the judge could have done, gave this 16-year-old 10 years of probation. And of course, this led to lots of discussion and debate how affluence affects people. But the reality is we are in the most affluent culture in the history of the world. Kings didn't have the access to food we have. We can walk 200 yards from this building and have feast upon feast, food in season and out of season. It's astonishing. The wealthiest of ages past didn't have the comfort in our lowliest of homes. The owners of the largest stables couldn't travel with the ease that we can. A London newspaper in 2008, The Independent, made the statement, said, all of us have affluenza, but some of us are less infected than others. And I think they're probably correct, though probably not appropriate as a legal defense. Affluenza affects us all. And so all of us have a hard time when we come to words like these of Jesus from John 16, where he sums up what to expect in the Christian life. Jesus says, 
I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. We think, great, yes, we have peace in Christ. But he goes on to say, in the world, you will have tribulation. Or in the NIV translation, you will have trouble. Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I think because of our affluence, trouble seems out of the ordinary for us. It's an unexpected guest. Because life is normally so easy compared to the rest of history in the world. It's increasingly become more difficult to live in this tension of the peace Christ offers us, but the trouble that we live in in the world. How do we reconcile the two? I think Christians today are uniquely bad at answering that question. That's exactly what this psalm helps us to do. As we see in light of the cross, our pain and difficulty bring us nearer to God when we trust in him. In light of the cross, our pain and difficulty bring us nearer to God when we trust in him. And we'll look at this text in those two divisions I spoke of earlier. Verses 1 through 18 is a tension, a tension we see in the Christian life. And then verses 19 through 24, there's resolution brought to that tension. So let's first consider this tension, verses 1 through 18. See in this first, the the, the chunk of the psalm, a coexistence of two seemingly opposite experiences of extreme trouble and deep trust. Extreme trouble and deep trust are are everywhere. And the psalmist goes back and forth between, between them, even intermingling them at times. These two realities are true of David's life. Of course, David wrote this psalm as the king of Israel, representing all of Israel, but the king who David only foreshadowed was Christ himself. And so even though we can look at David's life in this psalm, the psalm finds its zenith in the experience of our savior, our king, Jesus Christ. And so I think the first lens with which we need to look at the psalm is through Christ's experience, particularly on the cross. That's what verses one through 18 invite us to do. And so we see the extreme trouble of Christ on the cross. You could read back through the whole thing, but a few, a few verses to note. How he needs deliverance and rescue right off the bat in verses one and two. And so that puts this whole psalm in, in the category of lament, an individual lament. And here we have Christ praying for his deliverance from a certain death that he was facing on the cross. He knew death was next. So he was praying for deliverance from that. So we know ultimately Christ was praying for his own resurrection On the third day, there's trouble here. There's people threatening him. There's a net they have hid for him in verse four. Verse 15, he speaks of enemies and persecutors. Verse 18, lying lips which speak insolently in pride and contempt. The threats, the betrayal, the persecution of our savior. He was falsely accused. That's why he was ultimately crucified, was on the basis of false accusations, of lies. His whole ministry, he was derided. And on the cross, he stood there naked while the men below him were casting lots for his clothing. While people from the crowd were deriding him and mocking him. Even one of the men crucified beside him was mocking him. And this led to deep inner turmoil. Verse seven, we see the affliction and the distress of my soul that was caused. Oh, the deep trouble causing this distress. 
There's also physical pain involved with this. We see verses nine through 12. Let me read a couple of these verses again. And again, remind yourself, this is the experience of Christ on the cross. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent in sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. What? Deep suffering and deep pain. How poignant this is as we see Christ hanging on the cross with these thoughts in his mind. And we read here of Christ's iniquity. And the iniquity here is not Christ's iniquity because he committed sin, but we see Christ speaking of iniquity as Isaiah 53 said, our iniquity was upon him. So Christ here speaks of the deep distress because of our iniquity that was on his shoulders as he hung there on the cross. As St. Augustine would say, when Christ, when we we read the Psalms and, and Christ is confessing sins through the Psalms, he's not confessing his own, but he confesses them as the head and representative of all of us. The one who's born them, one who confesses even our sins on our behalf. So Christ is confessing the very sins that he hung upon the tree to die for. And so we see the difficulty, the experience of Christ on the cross with extreme trouble. And so behold this, your savior, the suffering servant, the one who laid down his life for his sheep. He suffered not because he was fallen, not as consequence for his sinful actions or bad decisions, like the thieves who were beside him, but because he was that sacrificial lamb who would atone for the sins of his people. We see the deep trouble on the cross, but we also see at the same time, wedded with it throughout this Psalm is the deep trust, deep trust. And we begin the Psalm with this wonderful line, Remembering he is in God's care. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. He says in verse six, I trust in the Lord. Again, in verse 14, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. So in the midst of this deep trouble, he affirmatively says, I am trusting you, my father in heaven. I love how word pictures, these short, succinct, Pictures painted for us, how they help us understand what a bare proposition of fact means. It's like a light coming into a room to help us understand. And there's one word picture that's used here twice. First is in verse five. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. And the second time is in verse 15. My times are in your hand. It's a beautiful picture of the father who upholds even his son as he is being crucified on the cross. And Jesus says affirmatively, I'm committing my spirit to you with my final breath. I'm entrusting myself as I have no more breath in me to your care. Because I know in your hands is the only safe place to be. Oh, how our savior full of trust in his father 
Indeed, in the plan that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit agreed to before time began, that the Father would choose a people, that the Son would come and redeem those people, and that the Spirit would apply the salvation to them. Christ was executing this part of the divine plan. And knowing that the Father would likewise uphold him, protect him, and indeed rise, raise him from the dead on that third day. What trust and confidence by the God-man by our savior hanging upon the cross. As we see, as he says, I commit my spirit to your hands, Father. His death was no accident. It was not an unfortunate end of a series of events, but it was a divinely ordained and executed plan to exalt Christ and to redeem all of his people. So Christ knew what was coming. And so he committed himself, affirmatively trusted at the same time of this deep terror and grief and suffering. Not only was this true of Christ, but we also see this experience in the Christian life as well, where trouble and trust intermingle now. I think this here is a microcosm of the normal Christian life. These two things are experienced by Christians at the same time, trouble and trust. And we see from the psalm that this deep trouble leads to prayer. In our lives, deep trouble ought to lead us to prayer. It leads us to mention and, and, and to bring this trouble to the Father, to name them, to come trusting in his care. I think what's interesting in the psalm, we don't see the psalmist asking, why me? Or is God there? Are you good? Are you listening? None of these questions come to him. But I think oftentimes it comes to many of us, does it not? In these seasons of our lives, sometimes we wonder, is God good? Why is this happening to me? And I think if we come to those places, one, we acknowledge it. We don't stuff those kinds of questions. We don't pretend they're not there, but we acknowledge it and bring it to the Father. But then two, we come to the Psalms to let God's word form and shape our thoughts our desires, our affections, and our emotions. Because in the Psalms, we have a blueprint for how to properly, without sin, address God in the midst of our troubles. And these questions in our at times of weakness and difficulty are legitimate questions to explore. But we come to the Psalms and we understand they're all answered for us. We see that God is acting for our good. We see that he is a God who does not abandon or forsake his people. So we come back to God's word and allow it to ask the questions we should be asking and to answer them with the great promises of God. An important part of this, this whole psalm is it speaks of the assault of iniquity upon us. In verse 10, my strength fails because of my iniquity. And we talked of this with Christ, right? Christ's iniquity was really ours on his shoulders. Our iniquity imputed to him. But as we pray this psalm, we are now acknowledging our own sin and even how our own sin contributes to our own troubles. Sin leads us to failing strength because it assaults us. Sin leads to troubles, even for the Christian. And Satan is a liar who presents for us the bait without showing us the hook, as Thomas Brooks would say. 
And so Satan loves for us to walk down the path of sin and to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, it's not going to hurt anybody. Oh, it's going to be wonderful. One little, th- one little sin. But David and Christ reminds us that this sin leads to troubles. Our sin leads us to failing strength. Our sin indeed leads to our own suffering and the suffering of those around us in this world, even for Christians. But I will say, for those who don't look to Christ, sin is something worse than that. For the Christian, sin doesn't have the final say because for the Christian, our sins are all, as we saw earlier in the service, are all forgiven because of Christ. Even though we still bear the consequences of them in this world so often. For those who don't look to Christ, sin doesn't just equal trouble. It equals trouble and death eternally. The sin equals trouble and death for the non-Christian. And so this Psalm calls us in verse one to take refuge in God. This take refuge is a recurring theme. You may hear it in almost every Psalm or every other Psalm. It's gonna be used over and over and over. And the key to interpreting this verb to take refuge goes all the way back to Psalm two, where it's used for the first time. The end of Psalm two, there's a statement, blessed are all who take refuge in God's kingly son. Blessed are all who take refuge. And this is an implicit call that anyone can come. It's a call to all to take refuge in this king, to come and trust in him. And then the sin is no longer death. Sin is now forgiven because Christ was on the cross for you, bearing your sin. Your sin is wiped away. And yes, in this world, sin brings trouble. It absolutely does, but your sin will not lead to death if you take refuge in Christ. Take refuge in him because Christ died so that his people will not. The grief of Christ on the cross is the same grief that those who refuse to take refuge in him will experience for all eternity. Run from it, turn from it to Christ. I've often found that trouble and trust run parallel in our lives. I think like, a, like train tracks. And it's precisely those hard things that often lead the Christian to persist in our trust in God. It's actually the trouble keeping us on track and then the other wheel keeping us trusting the Lord because of the difficulties in our lives. It's the ups and downs of the troubles that make us go back to our dependence upon God. Our affluenza always affects us spiritually, making us puff ourselves up with pride, thinking we don't need God, we can be self-dependent. But it is, in fact, the troubles that God allows in our lives that make us go back to our dependence upon God. Our affluence, our prosperity often takes us away from him, but in his kindness, he draws us back to himself, even if it takes troubles in this life to do so. This God that this psalm speaks of, the God who even authored this psalm, is a God we can trust because he is our God. In verse seven, it speaks of his steadfast love for us, a persistent love that will not fail for his people. In verse seven, it says he knows our plight. He sees our affliction. He knows our distress. That's the God we have who knows our every pain and difficulty and looks upon us 
with steadfast love. Indeed, in verse five, he has redeemed us as a faithful God. There are many lessons in my life that the Lord has taught me through parenthood. I think we could talk all day. There's many lessons we all have learned. But one I keep coming back to is a poignant picture of my own lack of trust. It's not uncommon for children to be concerned about something. Maybe they can't find their parent somewhere in the house. They're hungry and think they won't get food fast enough to satisfy them. Maybe a toy's come apart and they think there's no way to put it back together. So what happens in these cases? A child will lose all composure, control, and melts down completely. And in this moment, as a parent, what do you do? You say, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. I'm right here. I was just over in the other room. Or look, your, your, your PB&J, it's ready. You can eat it now. You say, look, I can put your toy back together. It's going to be okay. But what happens, even if you try to console them, they cry and they cry and they cry. The child doesn't believe your words or at least doesn't have the capacity to understand and to believe your words at that point in time. And the child is hysterical until it's all solved. In that moment, the child isn't able to understand that the parent is there to help and to bring resolution. And I see in my children, myself before a good heavenly father. When something unexpected occurs in my life, I act like that child, except I'm refusing to acknowledge God is sovereign and God is good. And in the same way, I as a parent want to comfort my child and say, it's going to be okay. and want to console them. Oh, I can be comforted knowing that my heavenly father is far better at tending to my needs, far better at giving me everything that is good far better than any earthly parent could be. So I learned through my own children what I really am like before God and how he cares for me in these moments, in these moments of tension and trust, this, this tension of, of, of trouble and trust. But let's turn our attention for a few moments as we conclude to the resolution the big resolution of this tension, what happens? Verse 19, there's a big turn that happens. This tension is gone. It's melted away completely. And now there's resolution. The child now has been reunited to his parents. He's finally devouring the PB&J that he yearned for. The toys put back together. For Christ, these words are the declaration that he died and rose again, fully rejoicing in his father. And so we see here Christ's praise of the Father, where he extols God's goodness and blesses him for his acts of steadfast love. The Father's heard his cries and delivered him. Let me read just a few of these verses. The beginning of verse 19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was a besieged city. I'd said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. This is a victory song of our Savior. This is the risen Jesus Christ incarnate, still praising the Father for his goodness and faithfulness and mercy. The troubles are gone and he's been rescued from death I know there's so much here for us in our praise of the Father as well, but in Christ's, in Christ's victory, we are blessed as well, right? Because in verse 19, as we just read a minute ago, 
The abundant goodness of God is not just for Christ resurrecting, but it's stored up for all those who fear God. It's for Christ as the victorious King and all of his people who have the blessings of the victory. All those who take refuge in him. Christ says in verse 20, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. In Christ's victory, we have victory. In Christ's resurrection, we now know the end of the story. We know what awaits us. We know the final picture. This is a window into what the new heavens and new earth will be like with God in blessed enjoyment of his presence forever. Though salvation now that we experience on this earth does give us a window and foretaste of this. So we can speak in a provisional way of these things being true of us now. And so yes, we can bless the Lord. Yes, we can rejoice in what he's done, but this ultimately will be fulfilled finally when Christ returns and we are taken up in the clouds with him and he makes all things new for us to dwell with him forever and ever. I think the greatest, most clearly experienced foretaste of these promises happen as we talked about in Sunday school, one day in seven every week. Where we, where, where our experience of, of trouble with trust is most clearly punctuated in this life on this, the Sabbath day. Where every Sunday, heaven breaks into earth as it were. And we experience that foretaste of what heaven will be like, of communion and joy with God's people, of knowing the blessed presence of God, his mercy for his people. Oh, on that final day, we will be like the child returned to that state of homeostasis and comfort. No more troubles, only knowing the undimmed goodness of God. And right now we get a foretaste of that. And oh, how we can rejoice and enjoy it. In light of the cross, I think this is a beautiful psalm to sing and meditate upon. For the saints of old, it was wonderful and glorious as well. But in light of the cross, how much more vibrant is it for us? to know our King spoke these words, suffering for us, trusting in his Father and being delivered, being resurrected on that third day. And now we can see the end from where we currently are. We don't need to medicate our troubles of this life. We don't need to pretend like they don't exist. Though wealth can cover many of them up, we can't deny their existence, but we can take them to the Lord. In light of our troubles, let us stir one another up to trusting the Lord more and more. In the middle of these difficulties, these troubles that come our way, like that which David experienced, like all of Israel experienced, like we all experience today, let us put our trust in the Lord in those moments. Let us commit our spirits into his hand. And so I think this psalm ultimately for us today is a call to persevere. Your Savior did. Your Savior persevered for you. He did it that you would be cleansed of your sins and in his presence for eternity. And now he enable us, enables us to persevere as well. To ver persevere in this life by his spirit, trusting in the midst of troubles while rejoicing and waiting for that final day. So as we face the troubles of this life, we can trust God as we await that final resolution. And as we can take heart from our Savior who died for us, we can heed his voice when he says, as the Psalm concludes, be strong and take heart 
Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let us, as God's people, wait for the Lord, being strong and of good courage. Let us look to him in prayer. Lord, we wait for you. We are thankful that you have done all that is needed for our salvation in Christ coming on the cross and dying for us and rising again as the great first fruits of that eternal life that we will experience in your presence forever. We rejoice in these truths. We rejoice that our Savior died on our behalf. And so, Father, receive our praise. Receive our gratitude in response to what Christ has done for us. Oh, as we live in the midst of troubles of this life, may we trust you, thanking you for your goodness and your mercy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.